everybody. Welcome back to The Big Show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, episode 53, with your host, Pastor Christopher Gillespie. Yes, I'm ready to uh, sing a hymn. (laughs) I am Pastor Donovan Riley, and I will not be singing a hymn on this podcast. (laughs) I thought about that last week. Well, maybe we should have, uh, like, you know, played it so people could hear the tune. There we uh, go. Yeah, that's right. We could... We could retroactively we might, drop a link in the previous podcast. Well, uh, no coincidence that probably the hymns that we're going to be singing are hymns that we've uh, sung at like Higher Things events. That is true. That is mm. true. So we might even have a recording out there that we could use. Look at I that. like it. I like it. You had something to drop in from the last episode. We received an email. Yeah. So it says Lutheran, what, what do we call it? As hymnody as it gets or something? Sure. Lutheran hymnody. Um, so what did we cover last week? All Mankind Fell? Right? Yes. And let's see, a couple notes, but I think that the interesting one is we said that the bottom of uh, LSB, when it says ALT, like this one does Mm -hmm. today that we're going to cover too, what that means is not uh, like alternate text. It means that it was altered by uh, the LSB hymn committee. Mm, So they took the English and they just tweaked it out a little bit, um, usually, you know, grammatical, not grammatical, but maybe like, you know, what do you want to say? Old English versus new English, that kind of thing. That's right. Yeah, um, Old English is very close to German. A lot of, obviously, Anglo-Saxon comes from the German. And Tyndale spent time in Wittenberg, for example. And therefore, Tyndale's translation of the Bible mirrors Luther's translation for that reason. And then when old King James sits out to uh, (laughs) produce the definitive version of his Bible, he then updates the Tyndale version without ever giving credit to Tyndale because that would have been bad form, Tyndale being burned at the stake. And, and so by the time, so in the King James Version, you, if you, especially if you understand and read German, you get a sense of this in the placement of the verbs, for example. Mm, okay. And they're very Germanic sentences in the King James. But by the time you get to the late 1800s, early 1900s, then especially in the United States, the English, the American English starts to take over the translations. And as my Mexican mother says, English is the language of commerce, not the language of poetry. That would be the Latin and then Spanish, French, and Italian, the gutter Latin uh, dialects. And so the translation from German, for example, into English is going to lose something in the translation, especially modern English, because modern English is not poetic. It doesn't lend itself to it. And it's still, the other point that I made still holds true that uh, uh, the translator actually paraphrased as well. He wasn't. Correct. It, it didn't even, what was it, like eight lines down to four lines or something like yes. that in yes. each stanza. So, you know, it's not exactly a translation. It's it's more of a, what do you want to say? Paraphrase. It's a paraphrase. Uh, we call it a mashup today or something, there we right? Know. It's a paraphrastic <laughs> rendering of the original text. The uh, other note was a great resource, actually, that we didn't link up to, but we can this time. Um, from, I guess, our friends at Calvin College uh, called Hymnary, H-Y-M-N-A-R-Y.org, which has at least has a lot of German, but mostly English, um, like summary of all the hymnals. LSB is in there, TLH is in there, LW is in there. So you can find out like um, you know, who the copyright owners are. There's there's biographies of the of the writers, all that sort of stuff. So a uh, great great resource to go look at if you want to like especially if you want to compare um like our our hymnals uh even the earlier english ones like uh, the one for missions and then the 1915 english hymnal sure you want to see how how things have kind of uh, what do you want to say evolved or changed over time mm-hmm. sure so shout out to everyone who sent in emails and helped us along our way as we get as hymnally lutheran as it gets <laughs> hymnarily hymnationally Hymnally, how would you just, would that be an adverb or an adjective? Um. <laughs> uh, this week, though, we're going to dive into salvation unto us has come. Uh, this is hymn 555 in the Lutheran service book. And if you're old school, hymn 377 in the Lutheran hymnal, 1941. And we'll this, just conveniently forget the one in between. Right. <laughs> As many already have. Uh, the author of the hymn, Paul Sparatus, is as follows. This is the most famous hymn of Paul Sparatus, or Speratus, if you want to go old school, and mm-hmm. also one of the oldest and best known of Lutheran hymns. 
It was probably written in the fall of 1523, and then included in the first Lutheran hymnal, the so-called Achschliederbuch, entitled Echlich Christlich Lieder, 1524. It was headed, quote, a hymn of law and faith, powerfully furnished with God's word, and was in 14 stanzas. It has been called, quote, the true confessional hymn of the Reformation, unquote, and the, quote, poetical counterpart of Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans, unquote. Miles Coverdale translated it for his Goosely Psalms and Spiritual Songs, circa 1539. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Cento omits stanzas 8, 11, 12, and 14. The translation is composite. So there you go. There's your answer. The word is mm-hmm. composite. <laughs> Not that I was up, looking for. Not, not paraphrase. Composite. Yeah. The tune Es ist das Heil, wedded to this text, appeared in the Ethlich Christlich Lieder, 1524. While some authorities think the tune was originally used with a German folk song, others, like Erk, maintain that it was a church tune because of the note attached to the tune in the Erfurt Enchiridion, 1524, which states that it was used with the Easter hymn Freut euch, ihr Frauen und ihr Mann, das Christ ist auferstanden. Hmm. And for a little bit more background on Paul Sparatus, Sparatus was born in 1484, died 1551, born December 13th, 1484, in Swabia. He entered the University of Freiburg, in 1503, and probably also studied at Paris and in Italy. There you go. In 1518, he was a preacher at Dinkelsbühl, Bavaria, and in the two following years preached at Würzburg and Salzburg, in both cases being forced to leave for expressing his evangelical views too openly. Mm. (laughs) Shake the dust off your feet, I guess, right? Yeah. He received his doctorate from the University of Vienna in 1520, and was one of the first priests to marry, thereby breaking away from the Roman custom of enforced celibacy. He was condemned by the theological faculty at Vienna, imprisoned for a time by King Ludwig, and in 1523 came to Wittenberg, where he worked with Luther and assisted him in the preparation of the first Lutheran hymn book, Etlich Christlich Lieder. In 1524, he was appointed court preacher at Königsberg, and he comes to have had a great deal to do with drawing up the liturgy and canons, the Kirchenordnung for the Prussian Church in 1526. He died as Lutheran bishop of Pomerania while living at Marienwerder. Hmm. So there you go. Yeah, so best known then as the uh, reformer of Prussia, which is where he ended up yeah. being, right? Well, I think also, because uh, we covered this last week as well with Spengler, that essentially what Wittenberg becomes by 1523 is a gathering place for all of those who have essentially been kicked out of their parishes or church somewhere else and are essentially looking for safe harbor. And, you know, interesting about that, uh, you know, the town is about 2,000 people, which is just a little bit bigger than this little town in Wisconsin that I live in yeah, now. Right. And you're like, I know. this is like an international gathering spot. Right. Um, how is that? You know? Right, exactly. All we've got is a pizzeria and eight bars, but that's that does right. actually yeah. sound like Wittenberg, actually. <laughs> yeah, actually, very close. <laughs> and a few churches. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. that's the thing. It, it does. It becomes a melting pot for ne'er-do-wells, roustabouts, and troublemakers. And they all kind of just uh, hang out at Luther's place, right? The, the exactly. Old cloister. The, black, the black cloister, right? It's no mm-hmm. wonder that Katie was always complaining about oh, the, yeah. the company at table. <laughs> there are all sorts wait a minute we got another guy that's been uh that's been what uh, has a death warrant out against right. him from the from the feds so to bring speak. him in and let's put him on the faculty yeah why not that's gonna go well the margrave yeah. will take care of us that's right, right. and in yeah. the midst of all of those route you know ruffians and, and rogues is philip melanchthon <laughs> this <laughs> this child genius <laughs> the nerd without guile as he was as he was first referred to here's a man without guile amongst all of these rebels let's dive into it salvation unto us has come again this is him 555 in the lutheran service book 
Stanza one, salvation unto us has come by God's free grace and favor. Good works cannot avert our doom. They help and save us never. Faith looks to Jesus Christ alone, who did for all the world atone. He is our one redeemer. Nice. That's pretty pretty straightforward, I think, as far as Reformation theology goes. That's pretty straightforward and rock solid. Well, maybe that's an important note to, note to make is that uh, Luther, and it looks, looks to be the other reformers as well, recognized that, that hymnody was like, uh, what, like a Trojan horse, if you like, um, to, sure. get, to get mm-hmm. uh, Reformation teaching into not right. only the minds, but the hearts of the people, right? Well, we've discussed this at other times, but uh, many major church movements are founded upon good hymnody or in the case of heretical movements, bad hymnody, but uh, (laughs) Arius, for example, was very popular with the youth and was known for his musical abilities. And especially in the early church, you see this in many different heretical movements. It was the hymnody and the composition, the, the theology of the hymns that really galvanized these teachers' positions hmm. and most often attracted the youth, not unlike our own day. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, we see kind of social movements being pushed forward uh, with song, right? Absolutely. The uh, countercultural you know, movement of the 1960s, civil rights movement. Even our generation, you know, with the whole uh, grunge scene, I mean, people miss that that was a... Here we are now, entertain us. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was a response to kind of just the miserable 80s <laughs> that we right, grew yeah. up in. The me generation, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were talking about that just the other day, uh, myself and, and an older person, and I was trying, I was explaining the distinction between this person who's a baby boomer and myself as a Gen Xer, and... I said, my parents were raised by the post-World War II generation, and there's a very specific ethic that went with that, whereas my dad did two tours of duty in Vietnam, and he came out of that generation, and therefore I was raised to be anti-institution, anti-authority, question everything, trust no one, but on the other hand, we were also provided with no alternative Mm -hmm. to don't trust the government don't trust the state, don't trust authorities and institutions. They lie. But we weren't given an option other than just don't trust. <laughs> and now the next generation comes along, our children's generation comes along, and we carry that forward. And at least for myself, I'm trying to navigate being a part of an institution and yet staying not autonomous, but free <laughs> within that institution. Yeah, it's not easy to do. Because the influences no, are strong. Right? It is. And, and you see the push and pull in any institution. This is true in the church as it is in the military, as it is in any corporate in- entity, which is that those that rise to the top are bureaucrats and those that mm-hmm. stay at the bottom on the front line, so to speak, are content to essentially do their job and enjoy freedom to a, a limited extent and are attempting to navigate the norms and customs of the institution. Mm-hmm. Whereas those who are climbers, social climbers, institutional climbers, not only adapt to the system, but then they're the ones who perpetuate it. And the point being yeah. in relation to someone like Spiratus or Spengler, and then of course Luther and others, that within that system, within that institution, the late medieval Roman Catholic Church and the scholastic theology that predominated the late medieval church, these men increasingly found themselves incapable of being frontline soldiers, so to speak, being uh, parish pastors, because the institution was so monolithic that even though there was room within the Roman Catholic Church for some plasticity, some difference of opinion, mm. the the doctrine of justification as uh, one Luther scholar, I think uh, Bernard Loza has said, this is a polemical doctrine. These are fighting words. Yeah. And the proof is in the fact that all of these guys got run out of town, thrown in jail, and decided <laughs> it was probably prudent to move somewhere else. Um, or in some instances, they left Wittenberg and they ended up being martyred. Yeah. Or they had a prince that would kind of, uh, you know, for yeah, political right. gain, protect him. Right, you know. right. So, yeah, it's interesting. So, again, we've got uh, this kind of like what we had with the last hymn as well, where we're trying to 
really teach doctrine according mm-hmm. to the scriptures, but but to to systematize it maybe organize it and you can do that when you've got 14 stanzas right right <laughs> well and i think this is a much more organic way to inculcate doctrine oh absolutely yeah because otherwise it's it's what <laughs> memorize tedious. and tedious yes <laughs> yes exactly data in data out right versus this which is much more organic like i said that the sing- the repeated singing of this will then be etched into your mind into your memory and, and the point being, too, is that doctrine isn't meant to be this dead, lifeless thing, but it is meant, you know, to teach the right. faith. A so living give, faith. Yeah, so life and love and, um, you know, and faith all being bound up Correct. in that. And joy, too. It should right. result in joy. And I think this, this hymn does that for me. Well, and consider, again, the time in which this is written. Salvation unto us has come by God's free grace and favor. Everyone, Roman Catholic or otherwise, can agree with that statement. Mm -hmm. on the surface however the next line (laughs) good works cannot avert our doom they help and save us never Mm -hmm. that is still fighting words to this very day yeah so it's it's getting right to the point and we're not gonna dance around the uh the actual point of the reformation here right exactly (laughs) right after it yeah that's the whole reformation in two two verses or just one verse actually but Mm -hmm. faith looks to jesus christ alone who did it who did for all the world atone. Behold the Lamb of God who dies for the sin of the world. Mm-hmm. He is our one Redeemer. And the biblical texts cited in the lower right-hand corner are Romans 3, 10 through 31. There you go. Romans 5, 1 through 11. Galatians 3, 1 through 25. And Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. That's about as reformation-y as you can get for biblical text 2. Yeah, and, and I think the English actually even strengthens the German in this case. Um, yeah. Because it adds like, uh, it's, he is our, he is our uh, mediator, would mm-hmm. be the German, or he's our redeemer, I guess you might say. Uh, but not, not including the very essential, ro- uh, excuse me, Reformation mm-hmm. word, one, or alone. Right. Er, right? Yeah, er ist der Mittler worden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He is our one mediator, but here, yes, redeemer. And he has done enough for all of us. Yes, um, is 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 fine, right? Yeah, but but saying he did for all the world atone, right? Um, is a little stronger, even. And again, as a side note, for those of you who can read German, go to the TLH hymn three seventy seven. The English and the German are right next to each other. So this would be the gospel stanza, right? This is it. So then, number two, what God did in His law demand, and none to Him could render. Caused wrath and woe on every hand, for man the vile offender. Our flesh has not those pure desires the spirit of the law requires, and lost is our condition. I like that. So, what? Uh, when you read the bio, you said uh, that in the note, at least in English, that this was what law and gospel, or how did how did it go? Faith or law and faith? A hymn of law and faith, powerful. Powerfully mm-hmm. furnished with God's word. Correct. Right. So he does something that we don't usually do is he, he really does bounce back and forth as we work through this. Yes. Law, hey. gospel law, gospel law. Yes. It always, but it always, of course, ends gospel. <laughs> and key here too, we've discussed this, but it's worth reiterating that this is God's word, as Sparatus points out, a hymn of law and faith powerfully furnished with God's word. God's word is law and gospel. Mm-hmm. And we use shorthand in the Reformation traditions, both Lutheran, Calvinistic, Reformed, law and gospel. But in my experience, what ends up happening when we simply say law or gospel or law and gospel is we abstract it and we turn it into a Euclidean kind of formula, (laughs) a formula like mathematics of, well, is this law or is this gospel? Versus one, as Luther argues, and then C.F.W. Walther in lecture 39 of his lectures later argues, only the Holy Spirit possesses the art of distinguishing law from gospel for the hearer. Hmm. That the preacher is to preach Christ and him crucified for the salvation of sinners. And the Holy Spirit will do everything, dividing law and gospel. That means God's word of law and gospel will be spoken by God through his messenger, the preacher, and in such a way that Pastor Riley will hear nothing but law, but yet Pastor Gillespie sitting right next to him will hear nothing but gospel. Mm, And the reason for that is, simply put, it is all the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Right, and it's relating to where you you are, right? Correct. Uh, in in your re- relation to God and yes, to one very another. Importantly, yes, in relation to God. Again, not in the absence of a relation to God, but rather in direct relation to God, who now is speaking to you mm-hmm. and directing you either to repent and to return to your first love, or to be comforted and right. consoled by the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you said this, the note says Romans 3 at the bottom? Yes, 10 through 31. Uh, it also seems to be getting um, into like chapter, or chapter 6 and 7 of Romans as well, right? Right. Because, because he's describing really the Christian life in kind of a narrative way. Yes, right? yes, very yeah. much so. Salvation came to us. We could not keep, it's, it, it's past tense, but it's present tense too, mm-hmm. right? Because he's describing... Oh, I don't know, about three three lines down, talking about our flesh and the spirit, which is a way of speaking of the relation of law and gospel to the Christian life. Right. Our flesh has not those pure desires the spirit mm-hmm. of the law requires. So according to the to the flesh, um, we we cannot satisfy God's law. And the proof of this, as I pointed out yesterday in the sermon, is the spirit of the law is love, not justice, whereas mm-hmm. we demand justice and God's law demands love unconditional love yeah and there yeah there as dostoevsky points out in one of his novels those who claim to love their neighbor but are actually um obsessed with justice will eventually end up torturing or maligning their neighbor right and justice can be understood in relation to the to love if if it means that you personally mm-hmm. do justice you do correctly by other right. people and what is meant by justice well look at god's just what is, how, how does god exercise justice not mm. according to our flesh and you know eye for an eye tooth for a tooth that kind of thing right right so it's a different kind of justice anyway and it's going right. to be a kind that's exercised in love right, right? and this is luther's wrestling match with god in the monastery is what does it mean to be righteous Mm-hmm. Does it mean yeah. that God demands that we be righteous so that we can be in relationship to him? Or is God righteous in that he declares us to be right for Christ's sake, to be righteous mm-hmm. for Christ's sake? It's a big difference, and that is the Reformation breakthrough. Yeah, according to works or according to faith. Right, right? and yeah. of course, here Sparatus just puts a stake right through the vampire heart of that old argument in the first stanza, and then shuts the door on our high anthropology in the second stanza there by pointing out we are lost and our flesh has not those pure desires the spirit of the law requires. I think the next stanza, though, really yes, exactly. is probably the most offensive. And uh, the most us. often quoted. Stanza <laughs> three. It was a false, misleading dream that God, his law, had given, that sinners could themselves redeem and by their works gain heaven. The law is but a mirror bright to bring the inbred sin to light that lurks within our nature. Mm. Mm, yeah. mm, 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 mm. that's fried chicken with biscuits isn't this galatians more than romans and and saying that this is now yeah that god's law despite what we'd like to believe that it was given to redeem us or to yes. make us right with god right it actually uh it it, it what inspired our imagination in a deluding way. <laughs> yes, yes. I don't know how else to say that. I mean, it's just, it, it gave us this crazy idea mm-hmm. that what God demands is obedience. You know, right. As far as salvation goes. Yes. Is that he demands obedience. You will have no other gods. This is a promise. Mm-hmm. We automatically hear it as a command to obedience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You shall. <laughs> right. It was a false, misleading dream that God, his law, had given, that sinners could themselves redeem, and by their works gain heaven. The law is but a mirror bright, second use of the law, to bring the inbred sin to light that lurks within our nature. Yeah, as if we could ourselves freely live according to his will. Yes. Yeah, as if. <laughs> mm. That's so yeah. good. It is. This stands before, from sin our flesh could not abstain. Sin held its sway unceasing. The task was useless and in vain. Our guilt was ever increasing. None can remove sin's poisoned dart or purify our guileful heart. So deep is our corruption. Yeah, very much in the vein of Romans 6 and 7, isn't it? Yeah, now it is, especially, you know, sin increasing without without measure. Right? Yes. 
Yeah, it's mm. the the beauty of this is one, it's so Pauline, as we've been pointing out, mm-hmm. but it, he closes all the loopholes that are available to late medieval yeah. piety. I, you know, as all of our attempts were useless, right? Yes. Vanity and actually made things worse. Well, and here's a point to for a man such as Sparatus or Spengler or Luther, who grew up in the late medieval system, who were ordained into the late medieval Roman Catholic system, there is no one better suited then to critique the late medieval Roman Catholic Church than those who were nurtured <laughs> and right and ordained yeah. into it. And I think, this is just my opinion, but I think this is why then Lutherans who grew up Lutheran and did not grow up Roman Catholic and escape and convert mm-hmm. have a have a terrible tendency to slide back into late medieval Roman Catholic theology unknowingly often, but yet do it. <laughs> well, this is the problem with institutions in general, right? I mean, you yes. can even apply this to something as uh, idiotic as the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. You know, after 63 years or whatever it's been, um, how far away from really the original point has the game gotten, right? Right. It's about food and, and uh, what? Commercials and, and, yeah. And uh, actually it was, uh, you know, uh, much like maybe what is it? The World Series uh, mm. was, you know, two competing football leagues, you know, that needed to, <laughs> they needed to kind of uh, reconcile, right? Mm. Say who's better because they were fighting against each other for market share, et cetera. Right. And then once they unified, so to speak, mm-hmm. it kind of lost its point. Sure. Right? I mean, and that was right at the beginning. We had AFL and NFL. Right? Yeah. Right. So, but uh, that happens with the church too. I mean, we just kind of get caught up in, well, we're Lutherans and then we forget what was so revolutionary about that in the first, in the first place. place right yeah mm-hmm. to be lutheran well it was institutionalized within luther's own life which he lamented especially mm-hmm. in 1531 when he wrote an essay on the word lutheran <laughs> and right. why he finally was just going to capitulate and accept the term because there was no better way out and well yeah, i think l- what it I, I think what it is is that uh, the church stops contending for the thing that was so yes, important right and it continues to be so important right which is you know, kind of what Sparatus is doing here is, yeah, in case you forgot, the idea that you could save yourself, um, that's a naive idea. Right. We've been through this before. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been through this before, lest you've forgotten. You know? And what's even probably more interesting to me is that the the children who grew up singing these hymns, who then became uh, members of the faculty at Wittenberg in the 1570s and 80s, mm-hmm. were also the ones who were the crypto-Calvinists, the semi-Pelagians. Yeah. And so even within one generation, those who grew up in the quote-unquote Lutheran Reformation had already gone looking for something better, so to speak. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the hmm, delicate balances that you make with hymnody. Mm -hmm. We talked about this in the last episode too, is that it's really about the text, okay? Correct. And that's the the purpose here. Like we said before, it's, it's paired with music. Um, really to, to carry it into the heart, right? So that it mm-hmm. is, uh, that it's treasured and it's, and it's really held fast to in, in faith. Um, the problem is, is that we can, we can just shift again towards sentimentality. You know, think of like a mighty fortress. I mean, right. we just, well, that's what Lutherans sing. Well, why? Why, right. You know, what, what, what about that particular psalm right. did Luther find so profound um, to his own life? Right. Who are the devils that fill the land? What yeah. is that one little word that can fell him? Mm. And so on. Yeah, we've yeah. lost the context of the original message. And so then it becomes like a sentimental thing. We have to stand right. and it's, it's We're our just triumphant. Par- yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually pantomime. Mm. Yeah. Is what it becomes. It becomes pantomime. Yeah. So do what we're doing when you sing a hymn. You know, maybe your church even tells you what hymns you're going to sing in advance. Yeah. Or, or maybe look at last week's hymns and, and really try to get to the bottom of them, right? Sure. What what, are, what is the hymn writer saying? Right, and yeah. uh, hopefully, hopefully you find faithfulness, <laughs> unless mm-hmm. your church might not sing hymns that it should be singing. And that is another generational distinction: is that the hymns that were written at this time, fifteen twenty three, twenty four, and so on, they are they can function very well as devotional readings. Absolutely. Yeah. Later, not so much. Mm. You, you then you got to really be critical and, and really use a filter. Well, and I think I think probably the distinction is um, oh, the word that comes to mind is ambiguity, right? Right. You get into poetry that is delightfully ambiguous, so you know anybody can sing it, 
Amazing and Yeah, well, he mentioned it again. Yeah. Um, it's just so obvious. Well, I mean, when you hear when you hear Jehovah's Witnesses, when you hear mm -hmm. uh, Mormons singing Amazing Grace with no no problem Correct. to their conscience, then you know that the words aren't direct enough to exclude right. false belief. Right? Well, I, I don't know if I've talked about it on this podcast, but when I was talking with the, the Unitarian Universalist minister, <laughs> and she noted that that's their favorite hymn is Amazing Grace. And I always bring that up for the old ladies at church when they talk about why don't we ever sing Amazing Grace anymore in church? And I say, because I will not allow a hymn to be sung in this church that is also the favorite hymn of Unitarian Universalists. Mm -hmm. These people believe nothing. <laughs> yeah. And that yeah. should tell you something about their hymnody then. Right. So just because you can import maybe a, um, a faithful meaning to the text, right. if it doesn't exclude you know, unfaithful right. ideas, uh, I would say it's, it's, it's a weak hymn. <laughs> If it's a, not even a good one. Well, I was going to say, if, if you lay down something like Amazing Grace next to Salvation Unto Us Has Come, and you don't see why these are two different animals, mm, yeah. <laughs> then yeah. have a Bible study with your pastor. This is nature's metal versus uh, right? yeah, you know, right. cute dog pictures on Twitter. <laughs> that's right. Back to the hymn, stanza five. Yet as the law must be fulfilled, or we must die despairing, Christ came and has God's anger stilled, our human nature sharing. He has for us the law obeyed, and thus the Father's vengeance stayed, which over us impended. Call that uh, substitutionary atonement. Yeah, and also this idea of fulfilling of the law. Right? Correct. Which we've talked about when we were studying Galatians. Lectures, the law right? and the prophets hung on him. Yeah, so that playing on that, that or that wordplay there, right? Mm hmm you know, all of the law hangs upon upon Christ. Yes. <laughs> and he literally hung upon a tree as a result. Right. Yeah. And this is something worthy of note that, again, I brought up yesterday in the sermon that I find lacking, and we don't really talk about it, is Luther's comment in, I think it's his sermon on the great commandment, is Jesus fulfills the law, and, there, and God sees – Jesus – does his work of fulfilling the law in such a way that God sees it as if we ourselves had done it. Mm, yeah. This is the point of faith, is that faith in Christ means that even though we cannot, and it is impossible for us, as the, as the hymn points out, to do what the law demands, yet because of Christ's work through faith, it is credited to us as if we had also done the work perfectly. This is Romans 3.31. No matter how... Um or what we're talking about, <laughs> we want God the Father to judge us according to his son, Jesus. Correct. Right? Regardless to, uh, regards right. to our works, to our words, towards our, even our thoughts. I mean, that that's one of the other ways that Paul expresses that is being clothed in Christ, is that when the Father yes. looks upon us, he sees his son then. Correct. Right? In everything. Mm -hmm. So we call that imputed righteousness, or it is credited mm -hmm. to us. But here he, he satisfies uh, the Father's wrath. Correct, right? and and that's and that's true. Just wrath, <laughs> mm -hmm. right over the law that has been that's been transgressed. Mm -hmm. Stanza six: Since Christ has full atonement made and brought to us salvation, each Christian therefore may be glad and build on this foundation. Your grace alone, dear Lord, I plead. Your death is now my life indeed, for you have paid my ransom. Beautiful gospel. There you go. Yeah. Let me not doubt, but truly see your word cannot be broken. Your call rings out, come unto me. No falsehood have you spoken. Baptized into your precious name, my faith cannot be put to shame, and I shall never perish. That word there, perish, is often translated as die. It actually mm -hmm. means to be ground into nothing. To be we get the word annihilated. You know, the word annihilated has the word nihil in the middle of it, which is the mm. Latin for nothing. Yeah. So literally to be annihilated, to be nothing, to be made nothing. Right. And here it's vir verloren, which is to be lost, you know, yeah. which is the same idea. So there the English may be a little weaker, but, uh, you know, that's mm -hmm. how it goes. But this is yeah. the key point of the little death, the little D death, the physical death, and the big D death that is to be cut off from God forever. That's what perish means. Perish is the big D death. It is to be annihilated in such a way that God will not speak to you mm -hmm. and therefore you cease to exist. 
And here it's connected to your baptism, right? Yes, exactly. In baptism, right. you shall never perish. That is, you shall never be annihilated. You'll never not be something to God. You will be a baptized child of God. Right, because you have... Or as you pointed out, clothed in Christ. Because you have his life, right? Correct, exactly. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right. Which is a Beautiful. mind breaker. <laughs> Wrap your head around that statement. That's, I know this is a just a very short tangent, but it is, to me, remarkable, Paul's exegesis of the scriptures, that he can read the Old Testament and come up with that sentence. From my readings of the Torah, <laughs> it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Like, go ahead. I challenge you, the re the listener. Go read the go read the first five books of Moses and come to the same conclusion as Paul, and then say that the Holy Spirit did not inspire him. Well, there's a uniqueness to Paul. I mean, from his beginning as sure. being a persecutor, but then even his what do you want to say? His special apostleship, I guess. Untimely born, he says yes, of himself. Right. You know that the Lord calls him distinctly on the road to Damascus and tutor tutors him like somehow. Yeah. Right. I mean, all we have is Paul's word on this, right? Right. <laughs> Somehow, he went away. <laughs> for, and for 10 years, he's in Damascus, and the Lord was teaching him there. You're yes. Like, okay. Right. Uh, that's interesting. And then, it, yeah, and he comes out with this stuff that's uh, beautiful, but also um, challenging, right? By way of you know, a, a remarkable comparison, then, Muhammad also made the same claim as Paul. Oh, that yeah. He, Muhammad right. was driven into the desert, into the wilderness, and he was taught by the Lord through the angel of light, who he credits to being Gabriel. Um, I would argue with John that the angel of light is Satan. Uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, you have a similar claim. However, how do you judge whether Muhammad or Paul is correct here? Well, mm -hmm. who is a faithful exegete of Scripture? And yeah. I would argue Paul is. Right. And the contention with James and the other apostles, mm -hmm. um, they do reconcile. I mean, it takes some time. For pretty much, uh, they reconcile in the sense of I'm going to go east. <laughs> That's right. Paul, you stay right here. <laughs> you just go do missionary work. Right, okay. Right. Uh, just don't come to Jerusalem. Okay. Right. There's a reason the twelve disciples went in different directions. <laughs> yeah. And it, well, they're not. Yeah. It's not just James. It's others too. Right. Right. Yeah. No, they all go somewhere. <laughs> well, and Paul, you know, Paul's pretty honest in his own appraisal of you know how well he gets along with people. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, he this is. is when, this is when Barnabas takes off or whatever, you know. Right. Uh, yes, that's right. Know. They've all yeah. abandoned me. <laughs> John, John, Mark. Yeah, he was okay, um, but right. kind of a young young pup, and we didn't get along so well. <laughs> that's right. Uh, stanza eight. Back to the hymn. The law reveals the guilt of sin, and makes us conscience stricken. But then the gospel enters in the sinful soul to quicken. Come to the cross, trust Christ, and live. The law no peace can ever give, no comfort and no blessing. Hmm. Now here, I think I pointed this out too in the podcast before, but again to reiterate, conscience, a pre-modern definition of conscience is a sense of one's standing in relationship to the other. So in mm -hmm. this case, it is our sense of standing in relation to God. Yeah, and it's struck down. <laughs> and it is struck and stricken, struck and it is struck down, it is stricken. The law reveals who we are, in fact, not who we wish we were or who we should be or who we project ourselves to be to our neighbor. But the law is that mirror bright, as he writes earlier in the previous stanza. Mm -hmm. And this mirror reveals sin to us, our sin. And how deep it goes, how deeply rooted it is. And thus our conscience, our sense of standing in relation to God, is stricken. Yeah. It, it cannot stand, no. in other words. Exactly. But then, but, and there is the gospel, but, hmm. but, then the gospel enters in, the sinful soul too quicken. Again, I wish more people understood basic grammar. I know that sounds arrogant, but I, I don't intend it to be. But, yeah. but negates what comes before it. And, and Lutherans, I think we talked about this, interpreting the Bible. I mean, we're not historic critical, uh, we're historic grammatical, right? Right. So we look at, right. we look at context and we look at word use. Grammar right? matters. Yeah, word order, um, you know, and, and so the text matters, of course, then, right? Because mm -hmm. we're actually reading it. It's not, yes. It's not just ideas, but, but uh, maybe sometimes we get a little pedantic about it. Sure. Yeah, well, there's that too. Get a Moving little lost. Every word, and it's like, mm -hmm. eh, maybe maybe Paul just spit this out, you know, and, and just a 
<laughs> in a breath and, and just kept going and yeah right. i got recorded but he didn't really think too hard as hard about it as we are right. or as intentionally maybe maybe um, he's like kerouac whereas he's typing there's like barnabas and mark are taping pieces of paper onto the previous piece of paper so he can just keep writing <laughs> stream of consciousness <laughs> oh that's the work of the spirit right there there you go uh, but just no, the, the yeah, but there the but in stanza eight that everything is leading up to that but to that turn mm-hmm mm and the but then is the gospel enters in and quickens. So stricken, then quickened. And quickened, we means gives life again. Gives life right? again, exactly. Lifts us up, stands mm-hmm. us upright. Come to the cross, trust Christ, and live. So there's that dichotomy that in the midst of death, we actually find life. And then to reiterate, the law, no peace can ever give, no comfort and no blessing. And by the way, this is not the empty cross, if you're concerned. Right. Um, this is the cross that Christ died upon. Correct. The, the, the corpus would still be affixed to it. Right. Uh, otherwise, think, it's not the gospel, right? Right. And here's the thing, too. Critics after this era, this generation, are quick to say, well, this is a negative view of the law this is this is a false dichotomy the law is bad and the gospel is good this is not what they're saying at all this is not what we're saying at all but Mm -hmm. rather the law is good because it kills the old adam but only the new man in christ can claim that that then the law is good the the old adam can never claim that the law is good for any reason right right and yet the new man in christ can also never claim that the law does anything other than exactly what's described here it can give no peace why because it kills us yeah. It reveals it, the guilt of sin and it makes us conscience stricken. No rest, no peace. Right. right. Mm-hmm. And even when we view the law positively, it still allows us no rest and no peace. There's never a moment's rest under the law. And I was going to make a note about this um, in the choice of the Lutheran hymnal uh, to omit a few of the 14 stanzas. Mm. Uh, it is interesting because Sparatus also brings into play then what is the place of works? Right. Yes, right. And he's so he and he he throws that into the mix a couple of places throughout the hymn um, that just aren't here in the, in the English. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, oh, let's see, right before the one that we were just looking at. Um, oh, I lost my spot. Hold on. What what stands are we on? Eight. <laughs> oh yeah, here we go. Before God, only that person is just who grasps this faith. Faith shines out, and when it does not neglect works for God, faith is very much a matter of loving to do good to your neighbor if you are born from God. So he kind of, you know, he throws that in, but then he's like, oh, wait a minute, but sin, (laughs) through the law, strikes down our conscience. So that's the challenge of works, right? Is on the one hand, we we cannot boast in them because if if there is any good in them, it's not of us, right? That's the key point, I think, anyways, and this is what I would argue, especially in relation to the third use of the law, especially Mm -hmm. if the formula lays it out, or Galatians 6, (laughs) is... The reason that the works of the law are good, as you point out, is because they're of God. It is mm-hmm. the Spirit who is at work in us that produces that fruit, and that is why it is good. But the old Adam wants to take credit for the works. Yeah, and Paul deals with this too. He's like, I got right. a lot of things I could boast of, right? Um, but but I dare to boast only of the cross of Christ, right? And what what results from this is that those then who call themselves saints because of their many works are actually satanic. Mm. Because yeah, they, they are, are they are stealing glory from the cross. They are stealing glory from the spirit. Look at me. Look at me. You know this is like you know in the in in the area of claiming that you were a veteran and you and you fought and you served in combat and you actually never served or you served as like a, a mechanic or something. It's called stolen valor. Mm-hmm. That you're you're claiming something for yourself that is essentially sacred to those who have been in combat. That is probably the most offensive thing, right? Isn't it? Likewise, what is more offensive to the Lord our God, who produces the fruit in and through us by the work of the Spirit, than that we step back and say, oh, look at what I've done. Little Jack Horner sat in the corner, pulled out his thumb, right? Or Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. looked at the plumber and went, what a good boy am I? Is that rather than, and we were in Bible study yesterday, we read the first article, Explanation in Large Catechism, and the way that Luther lays out the first article as gift and all the gifts of the first article, and says, if we really meditated and believed this article, we would be humbled and terrified by what it is saying. We yeah. would be humbled in the sense of, 
we would not claim that we are greater or lesser than anybody else, that God is equitable in all that he does, as he says in Psalm 107. And simultaneously, we would be terrified by, well, how we as sinners take all of God's gifts that he gives to us out of fatherly divine, fatherly divine goodness and mercy, and then twist and pervert them for our own use. Yeah. And to me, the first article explanation there in the large catechism is a perfect example of this very thing. Hmm. That even so, our breath is a gift, and yet we are constantly taking ownership and possession of these things as if they're our own. Right, and that would be the critique of this hymn, is that um, I think even a lifelong Lutheran or even what we call a good Lutheran would read this hymn and say, but what about works? But what about works, right? You always want to come back in and a way of taking some credit, of course, uh, the, the flesh, but also you know, recognizing that God has promised to work um, fruits of faith and those who believe, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the challenge here is that the argument is we need to deal with the fact that we want to take credit for those works and not, yes. and not give credit to God alone um, for anything good that might come from us. Right. Or, or to speak of works not as something that God requires of us for his own sake, but that works are given for the sake of the neighbor alone. Right. Yes, exactly, 100%. Because yeah. I'm already a baptized child of God, yeah. period. I'm done. <laughs> what more needs to be added to right. that? <laughs> right, As Luther, again, says in the Catechism, you have enough to meditate on for the rest of your life in regards mm -hmm. to baptism. Like, there's yeah. nothing you need to think about more than the fact that you're a baptized child of God and what that means, which sets you free then from the burden of worrying about your own guilt, your own sin, your own you know, impending annihilation. Those are off the table. Well, now that I'm free from having to worry about all that stuff, what do I do? You go love your neighbor. <laughs> and that is, um, what do you want to say? I mean, that's a witness of, of a sort. Right? Correct. I, where they, what does Paul say? You know, um, To be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you. Yes. I mean, that they, they see this hopefulness um, or what self-sacrificial love in right. you that, that is uncommon. <laughs> and it begs the question then. This is where... I think the term lead by example comes into play. Mm -hmm, yeah. There's a time for words, we call that preaching, but then there's a time to lead by example and, and to be quiet and just do the work and yeah. allow those around you to witness the work and the spirit will work as he works. Right. But also the flip side, if you look at someone and you don't see evidence of fruit, of faith, mm -hmm. um, it is not your place to judge them as being without faith. Right. Right. Right, exactly. You know, that, that this idea of faithfulness being you know, greater or lesser and then being revealed in some kind of spectrum. You right. know, of, well, and again, that would be the opposite of humility. <laughs> That's that, true, too. That actually is pride. Mm -hmm. Yeah, taking, taking credit or boasting in works. That's right. Right. Huh. And pointing your finger at others rather than looking in the mirror. As mm. James points out, you, we look at our face in the mirror and then walk away and immediately forget what we saw. <laughs> Let's be honest. That's right. Yeah. So back to the hymn. Stands a nine now. Faith clings to Jesus's cross alone and rests in him unceasing. And by its fruits, true faith is known with love and hope increasing. For faith alone can justify. Works serve our neighbor and supply the proof that faith is living. Well, there you go. We, yeah. Yeah, it's brought in at the end. There you go. And then we all stand up for stanza 10. <laughs> That's right. All blessing, honor, thanks, and praise to Father, Son, and Spirit, the God who saved us by his grace, all glory to his merit. Notice that Spiratus has actually covered all of the solas. Mm-hmm. That's right. All glory to his merit. O triune God in heaven above, you have revealed your saving love, your blessed name we hallow. Yeah, beautiful. And in Pauline fashion, we end with a doxology. And uh, in the original text, interestingly enough, he continues the doxology into paraphrasing, um, what would it be, uh, petitions, you know, four through seven of the Lord's Prayer. Mm, may nice. his king or, or actually not uh, four, but actually, may his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as, as in the throne of heaven. Yes. May there be daily bread for us today and forgive us our wrongs, which Ooh, is nice. interesting. Yeah, so not just the doxology, but also then going right in, paraphrasing the Lord's Prayer as well, which I like I've that. never seen that before. But that's yeah, that's a, yeah, that's remarkable. Yeah. Well, I then do you sit down again for the rest of it? No, I guess not, because you can't sit down until you say, Amen. Amen. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> that's right. So that's your cue. 
This that is, is this is yeah. That's the that's the end of the English rendering of salvation unto us has come by Paul Speratus. Really, a great rendering too. I think. Yeah, I agree. Uh, good tune. It sings well, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I, I think obviously, like with the previous hymn that we covered in the last episode, which again was in that fifteen twenty four hymn book. Maybe we just need to get that hymn book. <laughs> and go through that. Right. How many hymns of Luther were in it? I think, see, we had three Spiratus. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think there were at least four, and then uh, maybe two Walter, something like that. I, I was going to say six. You think six? For, so maybe it's four and then the two at the altar, but I thought there were six of Luther's works. Well, were, the, were they the catechism hymns, maybe? I don't know. Mm, Some of those came later. That's a good question. I don't know. But that would be fun, too. But looking at hymnody, I mean, this is a great, especially at the beginning, you know, we were talking about institutionalizing Mm -hmm. or the institutional uh, kind of character, something that's been around for a while and and things just kind of accrue and there's cruft, right? Yes. (laughs) And and you kind of lose lose sight of uh, kind of the core of the whole thing. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, that first hymnal, I I imagine, (laughs) was uh, pretty pointed. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, there's not, there's not a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of fluff here. No, there's not at all. But that's it. That's hymn 555 in the Lutheran service book. I don't have anything else to add. Do you? That needs to be said or doesn't? Well, I, well, I, I actually, speaking of these hymns, now that I think about it, um, this was a new thing, right? Singing German hymns. That is true. That is true. Yeah, so that's why there's, not, there's just not very many of them. Um, right. You have to go back pretty far to see uh, vernacular hymns or hymn, even mm-hmm. just hymn singing over just um, sacred chorale kind of, or not even chorale, chorale singing. You have to go back to, mm-hmm. who was the contemporary of Augustine um, over in Milan? Ambrose, right? Ambrose, yeah, his mentor. Yeah, Ambrose, Ambrose did it, but uh, apparently that wasn't so, uh, wasn't so common then from there on out. No, not at that time. So let's see, I got the hymns. All right, so we, anyway, we have Luther, three Sparatus, three more Luther, uh, and then an Anonymous. Okay. Yeah, so we'll come back to that in the next episode, dig that up and get through it. And as always, we truly appreciate all of your support and all that you do to support this podcast and the work that we do at Higher Things. Please go check out all the other content at the website and our YouTube channel for videos that go up several times a week. Um, what else? If you want us to read a theologian, a Lutheran theologian, please send us an email or shoot us a text with your recommendation. If you think we deserve it, go leave us a five-star review on iTunes to bump us up in the ratings and get more eyes on this show. Share the show with friends and family. Email them the link. Put it in their hand. Encourage them to listen to this. You can have a conversation about it then. Even better. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, I guess that's it for us this week. Come back next week for a brand new episode. As always, we love you, and we'll see you. Peace.